0: Welcome back to the 8th episode of Witnesses to History. My name is Keegan Gingrich and in today's episode we are returning to Europe to tell the story of Company Sergeant Major Charles Cromwell Martin. Serving as a member of the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, Charlie Martin tells a fascinating story of his experience in the Second World War in his book from 1994 titled Battle Diary. Originally, it was just a story of his experience at D-Day and in the Normandy campaign, but it was later expanded to include Charles' experience from the entirety of his war, lasting until 1945. While we have focused on some specific themes throughout the series, I want to dedicate this episode to more of the experience of combat and what Charles goes through as a leader. Uh, The book is filled with some great detail about the experiences and the decisions he has to make, similar to what we discussed with uh, regimental Sergeant Major Harry Fox. And Charlie Martin does an amazing job of explaining to the reader the logistics of warfare and the duties that certain units have in the war. I'm going to do my best to recount just a few of those today, Uh, but like usual, I'm going to attempt to not go too long, which never happens, so we're going to just roll with it again today. So let's get straight into today's episode on Charlie Martin. I considered myself so really lucky, you know. And many, many were doing their job, doing it for, for their country. The opportunity was there. I took it just couldn't do it all on your own if we're not around to tell them how are they going to know born on december 18th 1918 in wales just a month after the armistice of the first world war charles cromwell martin was born to parents charles and margaret martin who worked in a traveling circus throughout england until 1928 when they moved to canada to take up house building and farming They settled in the Dixie area of southern Ontario in what would become part of Mississauga. Charlie was a contractor for a local farmer when the war broke out, and his duties, in his own words, involved clearing ground, picking rocks, and using a team of horses and once in a while some dynamite to get about 40 acres on Dixie Road ready for plowing. Living in Long Branch and working on the 150-acre family dairy farm, Charlie eventually attended Port Credit High and stayed behind in the Dixie area to work while his family moved to London later on. Following the completion of his contract, he chose to take the trip to Toronto to enlist in the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, who had been mobilized in 1940. Let me read for you part of the prologue talking about his backstory. In the months that followed, Charlie proved to be not only a good soldier, but also a good student. It didn't seem to matter what they were. He soon compiled a grab bag list of credits. Knife fighting, first aid, judo, Russian language, marksmanship. And in his spare time, he came close to memorizing his copy of the king's regulations. This was useful, as it turned out, for those occasions later on, when he was called on to represent enlisted men at various court-martials. On July 21, 1941, the battalion left for England and the men began training of another kind, initially as defenders of the island, learning anti-invasion tactics and strategies. In 1942, Charlie was awarded corporal stripes, and in February 1943, a third stripe. Later in that same year, he lost his bachelor status, winning the hand of an English girl. He and Vi were married on October 30th at Shoreham-by-the-Sea, near Brighton. Vi was from a small mining village near Newcastle-on-Tyne. Perhaps because her father had been gassed in the First War, she was quick to throw her lot in with this war effort, joining the ATS, Auxiliary Territorial Service. She worked as a radar operator with the Royal Artillery based in London, and later on the East Coast. Then, 1944. Rumors of an Allied invasion of the continent were rife as the new year began, although no one was sure of it yet. Charlie became CSM, Company Sergeant Major of the Battalion's A Company, in February. Three months later, on May 25th, the planning began for an invasion that would see Charlie Martin on June 6th, probably the first Canadian soldier on a D-Day beach. Then, 78 days of fierce fighting in Normandy and eight months of tough combat across Europe. A few episodes ago, we looked at Farley Mowat's book, And No Birds Sang." And that was a really interesting discussion because there had been a lot of critique over the years about Farley Mowat's uh, tendency to, let's say, exaggerate or not be wholly accurate with uh, numbers and figures of units or or those sort of things. And I remember saying that I I don't particularly know if that matters because I don't think that's the point. I think the point of memoirs, I think the point of, of autobiographies is not always to get the finite numbers and the details down but to get the essence of, of what happened and what the experience felt like. In this book, I was reminded of this right away, because right before the first page begins, there is a little note from Charlie Martin here that I want to read out that I think is really important when we're talking about memoirs. Quote, This is not a history of the actions of members of the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada during the Second World War, nor is it a documentary of any sort nor does it put forward any strategies of battle or opinions about what was or could have been. It is simply a memoir, my recollections about A Company, and our assignments from D-Day, June 6th, 1944, through to my last battle on April 16th, 1945. There must be errors or omissions. There would have to be. They are not intentional, All riflemen have their memories, and sometimes they vary. These are mine. I'm going to read for you now some sections of the D-Day landing for Charlie Martin and A Company, and it's quite fascinating. And I'm going to skip through some parts, so I'm just going to get the initial landing, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the end of the battle on D-Day Um, because obviously there's going to be way too much to read, I believe it's about 20 pages here, Uh, so I'm just going to take some important parts, and then if you get the chance, please read the book. I know I say that every time, but please, please, please read the book. Um, It's really quite excellent, and all of these have such amazing stories to tell, but we'll get through uh, a couple of these stories on D-Day. This is just after the company gets in their LCA and departs from the SS Monowai. Each man had heavy boots and a 50-pound pack, and some had the extra burden that came with a Bren, a Piat, anti-tank gun, 2-inch mortars, ammunition, and all the rest of it. One error and he might drop like a stone between the hull of the ship and the LCA. Worse, even if a man in the water did succeed in unloading the extra weight, he could be crushed if the LCA came slamming against the hull. We managed, but it took time. The Monowai crew were getting edgy. They knew that there was a schedule to be met. Each of our five boat commanders in A Company was responsible for the loading and for making sure there was no vital equipment missing, so as I was commanding my LCA, I was last in. I went down the net as fast as I could. The LCA had already cast off. When it came to making my jump, I nearly became our first statistic. Buck Hawkins and Jamie McKenzie caught me just in time. While I was the leader for our boat, the LCA was actually commanded by two Royal Navy men, one a lieutenant who both sat in the stern on one kind of a raised platform so that they could see, but only just over the bow, which was also the ramp we'd be using. We sat in two rows facing each other. I was in the lead seat. Right across from me sat Jack Simpson, a sergeant and a very close friend. His brother Red was in 7th platoon. Both brothers were from Toronto. Jack had married just before we went overseas, and now as the next ranking NCO in our boat, he sat there steadily and calmly. Nothing ever seemed to get to him and get him upset. He was ready to take over if something happened to me. Above our heads, there was a protective metal overhang of about 30 inches. Ten assault boats were loaded pretty much in the same way. A company was in boats number one to number five. B company in boats number six to number ten. My boat had most of the men from my old original section in 9 Platoon. We'd all joined up in 1940, had trained together, had lived together, and had just been together every day of the last four years. There came a one-hour delay. This caused concern, since any delay would mean the assault would be in daylight, which turned out to be the case, instead of just before dawn. But we still had the comfort of the mothership as our assault boats continued to circle around in the Manawai. Finally we turned south towards France. The shore was approximately 5 miles away, and as we approached it, we could see the rockets and naval guns firing through the night sky. We thought most of this would be softening up our beachhead, but when we got there, we would find no signs of bombardment. Our navy guns, in fact, had overshot the beaches. All this heavy stuff should have been a signal to us that there were very strong enemy positions inland. In the early dawn light, we noticed a single plane overhead, but only briefly a long-range naval rocket took it out. We were about a mile from shore. As we moved farther from the mothership and closer to the shore, it came as a shock to realize that the assault fleet just behind us had completely disappeared from view. Suddenly, there was just us and an awful lot of ocean, or English Channel if you prefer. Later depictions of D-Day by wartime artists and Hollywood filmmakers would typically show support planes overhead, the channel crowded with destroyers and battleships, the shore full of assault boats, beach masters, and all that kind of thing. Not so with us. All that remained within sight was our own fleet of 10 assault craft, moving abreast in the early morning silence in a gradually extending line facing the shore, the A company boats on the right and the B company boats on the left. Daylight. We'd never felt so alone in our lives. There was mist and rain. Bernier-sur-Mer became visible. 1500 yards of beach stretched from the far left to the far right. Everything was dead quiet. It could have been a picture postcard of any one of a hundred tiny French beaches with a village behind. Not the real thing. There wasn't much talk. Earlier we'd worried about a little of the choppy, heaving seas. Now, as we came closer, it was a strange silence that gripped us, but we were all confident. There's a job to be done, each seemed to feel. Let's do it. Ten boats stretched out over 1,500 yards is not really a whole lot of assault force. The boats began to look even tinier as the gaps widened, with more than the length of a football field between each. Our initial concept of a brave attack began to seem questionable, though none of us would admit it. We could see the houses and buildings of the village. In between the village and the shore were the expected embedded obstacles and barbed wire with mines attached. In the center, there was a formidable 15-foot wall with three large, heavy cement pillboxes. The entire beach was open to murderous fire from machine guns positioned for a full 180-degree sweep. Military arts put forward a very different scenario. The assault boats appeared to be very close together and the troops within sight and sound of one another. This is likely necessary in order to get all the action into a reasonable frame, but in the actual event, it was quite a different thing. As our assault craft continued moving forward, B Company's number 9 and number 10 boats headed even further to the left, and Peter Ray's number 1 boat further to the right. Our own number 2 boat headed south. Both Ray's boat and ours were looking at a breakwater and some serious looking rocks on the right. Our first experience of action under fire started with a nervous gunner in one of the pillboxes. He opened fire prematurely, and a piece of metal cut Cy Harden on the cheek. The Navy chap slapped a bandage on the wound and said, If that's the worst you get, you'll be lucky. He was lucky. Even though later that day an 88 shell landed very close to him, turning him white as a sheet, he carried on with his section and survived to handle a concession after the war at Maple Leaf Stadium. But there were no hot dogs for him this day. The crew of two were handling the boat well. That first burst of machine gun fire had stopped. The engine purred steadily and didn't seem to disturb the silence. We got closer. Things might have been different if we had run into heavy shore guns or enemy aircraft. The lieutenant came forward to speak to me. We could see some of our other boats seeming to drift out, not in line at all, as we got closer. What now? Take us in as fast as you can, I ordered. Don't slow up. Keep us going. It was better to move directly and at a high speed than to chance drifting, as easy targets are broad setting obstacles or mines and I thought the speed would keep the bow higher and get us as close into shore as possible. He gave a signal to the sailor in the stern, go to speed. Everyone seemed calm and ready. The boat commander was in charge of this part. He would give our landing order. We waited for it. In just a few inches of water, the prow gated onto the beach. The order rang out. Down ramp. The moment the ramp came down, heavy machine gun fire broke out from somewhere back of the seawall. Mortars were dropping all over the beach. Possibly number one boat on the right took more of the fire. The men rose, starboard line turning right, port turning left. I said to Jack across from me and to everyone, move, fast, don't stop for anything, go, go, go. We raced down the ramp, Jack and I side by side, the men following closely. We fanned out as fast as we could, heading for that seawall. None of us really grasped at that point, spread across such a large beachfront, just how thin on the ground we were. Each of the 10 boatloads had become an independent fighting unit. None had communication with the other, although just before our touchdown, we were all inside of one another. We were on our own and in our first action. Every single one of us, from Elliot Dalton, our commanding officer, who was the leader for his boat, and the other A company boat leaders. Jack Pond, Peter Ray, and Dave Owen, to the ordinary soldier, was on the run, and at top speed. We were all riflemen on the assault, and there was nothing ordinary about any of us. This is Later in the Afternoon on June 6th, 1944. Early in the afternoon, the Queen's Own Rifles captured Augurney with C&B Companies. D Company advanced at the same time to take the village of Anisi. This put D Company a good half mile forward of our position. C Company, then, was given the job of patrolling back and forth between the two points for all of that first night. A Company held the right flank and B Company the left. The rest of the battalion was in the center of town. In this way, we had all-around defense. The Queen's Own Rifles had succeeded in advancing to its D-Day objective almost seven miles inland. We were the only regiment to capture and hold the assigned D-Day objective. It was on this evening that a moment came when some reality sank in about all the things that had happened during the day. It hurt. We had reached only the edges of bernier sur when we learned that the half of our original company, those I had joined up with in June 1940, had been killed or wounded. And we'd taken more casualties still, as we'd gone on to Augreny. The tears came. I went behind a wall. So many had been lost. I found myself questioning, idiotically, why war was conducted this way. Four years of training and living together, a common purpose, friends who became brothers, then more than half of us gone. Why didn't they just round up any collection of men in uniform and throw them into this killing machine? Why these, when anyone, somebody else but not these, could have paid this price in human life? In grief, there is not always good sense. It was one of those times. Gradually, though, in asking helplessly what we could do, we would find an answer. We would carry on and do our best. That's what. This next section, it's a little bit longer, but it's really interesting because it talks about the hard decisions that NCOs and other members of leadership uh, are often faced with in war, and especially the Second World War, and some discussion as well about the Normandy Massacres. This won't be as explicit as the mention of POWs in Japan from George McDonnell's story, but I'll still provide a warning anyways so because there is some graphic content here. Uh, so this is a couple pages long, but I feel like discounting uh, any page of it would be uh, a disservice to to the content. And then we'll have two more uh, two more instances that I want to talk about afterwards. So we'll hopefully wrap up around 30 minutes or so. But this is uh, the Battle at Minipatrii and this one's really significant so i hope you enjoy it uh it's not really an enjoyable experience by by any means um, but i hope it's at least interesting and you find it uh, s- striking in some way the next move planned for the queen zone was to attack and hold the village of Meni Petrie and to capture the high ground at chia earlier when the regina rifles had captured Noreon Basin, It had become obvious that this firm base would be useful in pushing forward to capture Lemeny Petri. But we were a little bit puzzled about the situation. There was a curious scarcity of information and we wondered what was going on. The Queen's Own rifles were being asked to push forward 7 miles against unknown opposition. We had no information on the enemy. There were none of the usual aerial photographs. There was no opportunity to send out patrols. It made no sense, so the whole idea of this action seemed suspect. At any rate, on June 10th, the battle line moved to Nufmea and eventually to noray en We were assigned the high ground on Che as our objective. D company moved up on the right flank and A company on the left to the start area facing Lemini Petri at about 1,300 hours to be ready to move out at 1,400 hours. There's a fair amount of confusion which did nothing to reassure any of us. We moved out approximately on time from our start line at noray D Company was to move straight ahead to the objective. Our company was to swing towards the south. The men of both companies rode the tanks until suddenly we came under heavy fire. Riding a tank from village to village for transportation was one thing. That's the way we started the action. But battle was different. Once the 88s opened up, we might as well have been trying to ride a wild bull. The tank sped up, turned abruptly, or worst of all, blew up. You'd wonder what there is in a metal monster that could catch fire. Whoever nicknamed a Sherman tank or Ronson had good reason. The enemy gunners could get off three very quick shots within two or three seconds. The three hits would be so successfully aimed that you could cover the hole with a dinner plate. Now there was fire everywhere. Hatches came up, tank men struggled to get out, mostly with uniforms on fire, and the drivers with our riflemen tried to put out the flames both in the machines and on the men. The German 88mm gun, with its enormous barrel, could have been the most effective gun in the war. It had started life as an anti-aircraft weapon in the African desert. Then somehow they discovered the barrel of the thing could be lowered so that the gun could be used on the ground to take out tanks or to knock through defenses. Neither brick and stone walls nor our armor were any match. The enemy also mounted these guns on their tiger tanks. Their use this way was the most destructive of all. If you heard an 88 coming in, it was usually too late. With weapons like these, the enemy had our tanks pretty well at their mercy. Firing from dug-in positions about 800 yards away, they had easy targets. Our tanks had to get out. The drivers couldn't see the ground directly ahead or under them, so a soldier on the ground had almost as much to fear from his own raging tanks, twisting, speeding up, retreating, flames everywhere, as from enemy fire. It wasn't easy for an NCO or an officer to keep some control of the situation in the midst of all this. The battle raged for a very short while. Within 15 minutes, the enemy knocked out 19 tanks. 70% of D Company were killed or wounded. I had given the order to get off the tanks. We were sitting ducks with that kind of exposure, and we could move just as fast on foot. Our commander, Major Elliot Dalton, was badly wounded in the leg, probably from the mortar fire. We managed to apply a tourniquet and get him out back to first aid. There were other wounded some were able to remain in action. In all, the Queen's Own lost 87 killed or wounded. B Squadron of the First Hussars lost 60. The foregoing is only a very brief summary. The Regimental History gives the action at Le meni almost three pages, calling it a magnificent attempt to resolve a hopeless situation. An English newspaper report called it a modern version of the Charge of the Light Brigade. After the mini-patrie, we took care in advance of any other action to prepare a LOB list, left out of battle. This, we hoped, would prevent a complete disaster. Those on the list would stay at A-Echelon, generally a mile or more in the rear. There would be perhaps our second-in-command, the company quartermaster and clerk, the two truck drivers, two shoemakers and two cooks, nine people, plus one platoon commander and two others, for a total of 12 from the company, generally speaking. Later in the day, we realized there must have been some unusual reason for ordering our attack on Lemini Petri. The following morning, June 12th, things seemed strangely quiet, so in the afternoon we took a patrol into Lemini Petri. Bill Betridge, Bert Shepard, Sid Willis, and myself. We sound little except for the dead. The Queen's own D Company soldiers and the tank men from the Hussars. But as bill shep and i looked over the ground sid was our lookout back at the start point we discovered enormous dug-in tank positions curved and ramped pits about 40 feet long and 10 feet deep other tanks had been cleverly camouflaged in the wheat fields nobody had reported them no aerial reconnaissance had revealed them there could have been as many as 100 tanks and more light armored vehicles hidden in this style marvelous for defensive purposes the villagers told us that there were more than 80 heavies, heavy tanks, along with many, many infantry troops, far too many simply for a holding position. So one thing was clear to us, they were preparing for an attack drive to the beaches. Information must have come from some source in France or from the resistance movement, or from one of our own men behind the enemy line, that a large counterattack was to take place on June 12th from the village of Le Petri. There's no question with that kind of force that the enemy would have advanced well toward the beach. We would have lost not hundreds of men, but thousands, had we not gone in to break up their position. It is always easy to criticize the high command. Colonels, brigadiers, generals. Many people do it, especially when they are the ones being shot at. But in this case, that unidentified somebody in a high position made a most difficult, repeat difficult, decision. I believe this person, whoever he was, knew that he had to commit at least one regiment to break up this concentration of force and thus prevent the certainty of a drive towards the beach. Despite the cost we paid in the action on June 11th, friends dead and wounded everywhere, and the awful aftermath we saw in our patrol the following day, I have to say that any responsible soldier in that commander's position would have made the same difficult but necessary decision. A battle such as this produces many confused accounts. From my point of view, it was a straightforward plan to capture the high ground around Che and the village of Lemony Petrie. Unfortunately, the enemy proved to be highly trained and proficient in defense and far too strong in armor. Nonetheless, our action caused the SS that night to order a withdrawal. When Bill, Shep and I had moved through the village the next day, we found nothing of the enemy. Not a single vehicle, not a single enemy soldier, alive or dead. But sadly... We could identify plenty of our own from the QOR and the first Hussars who had paid the price the day before. During our approach to the village on that June 12th patrol, we came across Tommy McLaughlin and his section. We'd been crossing through a grain field following a little dip in the ground, not knowing where the enemy was or how soon we were going to hear from them. When you're that tense, every little sound or sighting is magnified. Even at a distance, the six bodies didn't look quite right. We could see the field dressings on the wounds and the prayer books strewn all about. They were around 50 feet from a low wall where the ground dropped away and provided some cover. My guess was that they had been machine gunned in the action and had retreated over the wall to patch up as best they could. I think the enemy had come up to the wall and spotted them. Tommy's section would have been in plain sight and an easy surrender. Then we came close and saw that each had been pistol shot in the temple. We had to move on and finish the patrol, but the image of our murdered men in that little draw, wounded and with field dressings, all of them prisoners, their weapons gone, stayed with us. For myself, well, I had pretty strong feelings about what I'd do when I got my chance. But when it came down to it, I couldn't follow through with that kind of revenge. Our written report was turned into two lieutenants, Dave Owen and Jack Pond, with a full description of what we'd found, including the murders of Tommy and his men. I expected we'd be contacted for more information, but we never were. We'd lost the commander the day before, and I expect HQ and the colonel were pretty shaken up about the Méni Patri, but I always thought it strange that at no time afterwards, did anyone ever ask us anything further. I wanted to include Charles Martin's account of his role in Operation Blockbuster uh, because it's where he was actually awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal, and it's a really cool entry. But I've decided to opt against that just because it would it would take a lot longer than I expected it to, and uh, I also didn't feel like it would compare to the discussions of the uh, the massacres of prisoners, and. I thought that that might have been almost a better way to to leave that. And it's striking that he was able to see all of this firsthand, right, and be a part in D-Day and then also witness uh, this horrible, horrible massacre of his of his colleagues who were prisoners of war. And I just thought those were, were a lot more important. So that's why I included those. Um, I'm going to include one more entry it's not going to be where he gets the, the DCM um, but it's just a maybe a little bit of a lighter story because I feel like that doesn't happen too often where we get the, the lighter stories in these memoirs so I'm going to include something that's a little bit funny and uh, try to to lift the spirits back up a little bit. And then maybe call it a day on on the episode. So uh, this is on pages 44 and 45, and it has to do with some underwear. And I know you might be thinking, how does this relate? But we'll get there. This is called hot water and clean underwear. On July 12th, the battalion was withdrawn to a rest station called Gimanche. This week gave us a chance to clean up, put on some clean clothes, and discuss what had happened, the mistakes that might have been made, how we could correct them in the future, and so on. We had been very fortunate. Even though we had lost many officers and NCOs, others would step forward from the ranks taking over the job of leadership. The men were so well trained that every soldier could lead a platoon if necessary. The training we had received over the last four years was priceless. In the rest area, we were also given the chance to write some real letters home. In general, most soldiers sent the letter as often as possible, but usually just a small card. In battle conditions, after they had dug in, arranged camouflage, and put out their flares, each would almost automatically take out a pencil, pens couldn't stand up to the rough life, and get off a short note on one of these cards. But at a rest area, they could do better. Rest stations like Gamanche, however, were not entirely tourist areas. We were still under artillery fire. The fire at times was heavy and very well planned. At least enemy aircraft were not a problem for us ground troops. There was some ambush bombing on a few nights, two or three planes trying a sneak attack, but generally the Luftwaffe had taken off for other territory. Gimanche was also the scene of an incident that others probably are still laughing about, but I was pretty upset at the time. Here's a stripped down version from my viewpoint. At Gimanche, they had a mobile bath set up so you could get what they call the shower. Everybody got water, and if you were lucky, you got hot water. Most of us thought there weren't really any heaters, despite the advertising. At any rate, it was mostly cold water for us. Each soldier was given clean socks and underwear. In my case, a little problem arose. After I'd stripped and run through the mobile bath, the quartermaster managing the thing said, well, seeing that you had no underwear coming in, you cannot have any replacement underwear. Now, we had worn one set of underwear since May, back at some place in England, and we hadn't had any chance to really watch it. We could rinse it out sometimes and try hanging it in the slit trench to dry. That really wasn't a good, particularly good idea. So I'd throw mine away. There followed with the quartermaster and me what you might call a slight disagreement. I picked up a Bren gun and went after him, yelling and shouting, stark naked, waving the Bren and hollering like a madman. I chased him through the village. There was no magazine in the Bren, but he didn't know that. When I went back to the mobile bath... There was no trouble getting my new underwear. It had suddenly become so quiet, in fact, that I helped myself to a spare set. The Queen's own rifles held the position at Gamange for the next eight days. In this holding period at our rest station, we lost over 30 soldiers killed or wounded from enemy fire that was ever present. Charles Cromwell Martin was one of the youngest company sergeant majors in the regiment's history at the age of 24. And he won a Distinguished Conduct Medal, as we talked about, and a Military Medal. Uh, he's someone who had an exceptional legacy in the regiment and one of very few to win the DCM. After returning home from the war, uh, Charlie Martin and his wife Violet both went on to open up a general store and a post office uh, on some land that they purchased. And Charlie himself also continued to work with the Department of Agriculture with the Canadian government. Charlie was also featured in a 1994 documentary, taking some excerpts from his book, as well as some of his own stories, archival footage, and some other aspects uh, in this CBC documentary, which is really cool. And I really suggest that everyone watch this. It gives you a much better insight into Charlie as a person and kind of what he was all about. Uh, Unfortunately, Charles Martin didn't uh, survive long after the CBC production and the publication of the book, and he passed away on the 13th of October, 1997. This episode was really different but familiar because we've obviously talked a lot and heard a lot about Normandy and D-Day and all the things that have happened, and it's one thing to hear about these accounts from historians and academics, and that's all... You know, great because it has such detailed information when we're talking about uh, the times that people landed on D-Day, the uh, statistics of how many soldiers uh, were killed and how many soldiers participated, all those things. But you don't really get a sense of what it was really like until you hear it from a soldier's point of view. And I think Charles Martin's account is exceptionally good for that. And I was very happy to read this. You definitely have to pick up a copy of Battle Diary. Um, It's been out for A a long time now almost almost 30 years so if you haven't read it now is a great time to do so there's obviously so much that I wasn't able to include and I really do hope you get to read this book Um, all of these so far this year have been excellent Um, they've been some really great selections I I think uh, well I selected them so maybe I'm a little biased Uh, but also a special thanks to Alex for helping me to do so And I I think that's kind of it for today's episode. And I just want to say thank you once again for listening. And we will speak to you sometime next time. Have a great day. Take care.